Good morning, everyone. My mic. Is my mic on? There we go. This room is actually built to be able to not use mics because when it was made, they didn't use microphones. So we can get by either way. But uh, it's great to be back with you guys. Um, I finished my 10-day quarantine. I'm double tested negative from COVID, so here I am, grateful for God's grace, um, His sustaining grace for us. Huh? Um, these these times teach us how needy we are of God and His care for us. And they, though it may be painful in many ways. Um, there are good lessons and good, good providence in all things the Lord works for us. So um, grateful to be back and uh, grateful for Brendan bringing God's word last week and grateful for our live streaming and our tech crew. Uh, it's a real blessing when you're in that place, you can't be here and you're able to participate uh, through live stream. So I was with you in spirit and via the internet last week. Uh, but this week we are taking a break from our series in Romans uh, and Continuing through Christmas, we're in an Advent series. Uh, we'll go back to Romans at the start of the new year. And so we're going to take four weeks, in the uh, four weeks of Advent. And by the way, I should light one of the candles. In these four weeks of Advent, we're going to focus on the classic themes of Advent. Um, hope. Hope, uh, peace, love, and joy. And so this week, we're going to talk about hope and there's lots of things in Scripture that uh, teach us about hope, lots of passages that teach us about hope, and uh, I felt led to speak from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19. Um, so I'll project that, but I'd encourage you to open up your Bible and be there as I read through it. This is a passage that connects hope with the real temptation we all face as Westerners and as Americans, the, the temptation towards materialism and riches. And so this is a passage that sets the truth of hope in the context of the temptation of riches. And I trust that this will serve us well uh, this Christmas season and, and beyond as well to learn to put our hope not in riches, but in God who richly provides us with every good thing. So let's pray, and we'll look at God's word, and we'll dig in. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that we're going to look at today and why you put it in Scripture for us and for, for your people. We thank you, Lord, for what you want to do today, and we ask you to come and be with us. Help me, Lord, to accurately teach your word, to proclaim its truth, and do my best by your grace to, to communicate the import, the weight, the, the wonder of what you're saying here. And I pray, Lord, help us to have ears to hear from you, that ultimately through this time that we would encounter you and your truth, and we would understand how good you are and how good your ways are. We would turn from other ways to trust you and follow you, and to live in this rich and, and wonderful hope that we have in you. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19. Of course, this time of year in a passage like this uh, directs at least my attention, maybe yours as well, to good old Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and I'm, I'm, Peg and I already had our dose of uh, the Christmas carol. We'll probably watch more than one version. My favorite version of a Christmas carol actually is the book. Um, my kids gave me the, an old copy of the original book and its original uh, language some years ago. That is my favorite, and if you've read that, you probably know why. It's, it's so well done. But um, there are so many movie versions out there. I counted this week 50 different versions of A Christmas Carol in the movies. Um, and you have all sorts of versions out there, right? Everything from a, almost a verbatim um, version. I, I think the one... Um, there's one recently done uh, that, that's almost verbatim, all the way to versions like the Smurfs, A Christmas Carol. Um, there's all types out there. Uh, but, but we love this story, and, um, and we love the, the truths that are taught through this story. Um, we know Ebenezer, who's very wealthy, but very miserable and stingy. And, and he's contrasted in the story uh, with a number of different characters, but one of those is his nephew, Fred. And if, uh, in the dialogue, Fred is very different than Ebenezer, though he's his nephew. He seems to understand the place of money. He understands even the truth that's in this passage that we're looking at today. And there's this point in the movie where there's a dialogue where they visit Fred and his wife, uh, Ebenezer, secretly with the ghost of Christmas present. And they overhear the following conversation between Fred and his wife. And he says this, he's a comical old fellow said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear, said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking that he... Is ever going to benefit us with it? I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am very sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. The tragedy of Ebenezer Scrooge is that he thought himself safe and secure and happy in some way because of his money, when in fact he was locked up in a prison of his own making in his selfish misery and uselessness. Sorry. And the wonderful moral of the Christmas carol is that money is meant to be used to do good. And looking at First Timothy, to do good from hearts that, are, that have set their hope on God. The wonderful moral of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that lines up with the Christmas carol. Money is meant to be used to do good from hearts that have, been, have set their hope on God. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at the passage today. That main theme and what I want to look at as we go through is three different sub-topics. First, hope not in riches. Second, hope in God's rich provision. And third, hope in eternal riches. So first, hope not and riches. Verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, I think we need to start and look at what 
the rich are. Because most of us, I think, when we think of the rich, we're thinking of someone else, right? Someone we know maybe, maybe someone in your neighborhood or maybe a relative or maybe people who live in those houses in that other part of the town. Um, so what is rich and what is this present age? What is, what is going on here? What, what does this truth mean here? Well, when Paul uses the word that we translate as rich, the word itself actually means is plenty. And so as for those who have plenty in this present age might be another way to say it. And this was written in a day when most people didn't have plenty. Most people would have lived in this day hand to mouth. Uh, that's why in the Lord's Prayer we pray for our daily bread, because most people that was literally what they needed to pray for, their daily bread. Um, you were to pay a person their wages daily because they didn't have any savings accounts. They didn't have any other money. And so if they didn't get their daily wage, they didn't get their daily bread. And so that's the context of the day where, where Paul says the rich in this present age. We tend to think of the rich as, you know, what, whatever, whatever category. It always is shifting. Six figures or more than a million dollars in net worth or whatever it might be. And now it's 10 million, whatever that word. But in Scripture, it's really those who have plenty because the context was people lived hand to mouth. We can also, I think, understand the rich a little bit better by looking earlier in 1 Timothy. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul is speaking about the dangers of, of the love of money, and then says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul is speaking about wisdom in light of the temptation to be rich. And he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, the word for clothing can also uh, mean more than just actual cloth, but things that cover us, so shelter. And so I think the baseline, the baseline needs that Paul's talking about are food, clothing, and shelter. And if we have that, will be content, is what he is saying. If you have more than that, in this context, you are rich. That would be the biblical definition of being rich. You have more than just simple food, clothing, and shelter for the day. You have extra. You have extra stored up somehow. That is really what biblical wealth is, to be rich biblically, is to have more than just your daily supply of food, clothing, and shelter. So I think if we look at our own lives, honestly, we must recognize that we all, probably everybody in this room, has plenty, right? We have closets full of clothing. We have, we have storage areas full of food, cabinets full of food. I mean, if we didn't go shopping, we probably could survive for quite a while just on the food stored up in our houses. We have bellies full of food. Actually, for, for centuries, the only people that, could, that were overweight were the kings and queens. It was a status symbol to be slightly overweight because they're the only ones who can afford to eat at that level. Everyone else was skinny because they went hungry. That's why. Uh, and nowadays, of course, uh, being overweight is a, a national epidemic. We have abundant food, abundant clothing, abundant shelter. We live in mansions. We live in palaces, really, compared to even just a couple generations ago. 
So I don't say this to scold us, and it's actually interesting, in this passage, uh, the rich are not scolded for being rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich, and actually sometimes wealth comes from a life well invested. Uh, that's not the point here. I wouldn't want you to understand that. But I do want you to recognize that most of us are in the category of being rich. It's not that guy. It's not that person who, who has all that money and all those cars and that big house. It's you and me that Paul is speaking to. So that's who the rich are. But he says the rich in this present age. Isn't that interesting? The rich in this present age. That's the qualifier here. He's speaking about being rich now. So there must be another age that he's talking about, of course. He's talking about the future age, the eternal age, the age that will go on forever, that once we're in that age, we will look back at this age and it will just seem like a distant dream. The rich in this present age, the rich right now. We, we are rich in this present age, and that, that gives us an important perspective on our riches. We must recognize that these riches are very temporary, very temporary. You brought nothing into this world, and you will take nothing out of this world in terms of material riches. You brought nothing in, you'll take nothing out. As Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked will I depart. A man at a wealthy woman's funeral asked how much she had left, and the pastor wisely said, all of it. We are rich in this present age only temporarily. And whether through our own deaths or the imminent return of Christ, this age will pass. Christ has come. He has died for our sins. He's risen from the grave. He's reigning now, and this age is passing. It will pass. The work will be done. The promises will be fulfilled. And there will be an eternal age that lasts forever. This age will look as but a breath, a mist, a vapor compared to eternity. So Paul says, as for the rich in this present age. That's important to get. That's an important truth to understand uh, in this whole passage and how we're, under, how to, we're to understand these things. That it's Temporal, it's passing. We are rich in this present age. It reminds me of Chuck E. Cheese. Do you guys remember Chuck E. Cheese? They're actually still in business. They went bankrupt, but they came out of it. Um, and when our kids were little, that was a big deal, Chuck E. Cheese. And you know the setup, right? You go and you order your pizza, and while your pizza's being made, you, you get some coins, you buy some coins, and you give them to the kids, and you get some soda. And if you think about what a dangerous thing, pizza, soda, and kids running around playing games. But uh, we never had any episodes uh, with where that could go. But anyhow, that's, what, that's the thing. You get the coins, you go play the games, and if you do well in the games, what happens? You get tickets, right? And so you know, you know if you had kids and you brought them there, that was the big deal, how many tickets you could get. And then you get, you, know, you get a big handful of tickets. I remember the kids having tickets. And then you go and you buy something with those tickets, right? Uh, you trade it in for some prize, and the prizes cost a good amount of tickets. And the prizes cost about probably five cents to, to buy. But anyhow, it's a big deal when you're in Chuck E. Cheese's, right, to have all those tickets in your hands, to get those prizes. Um, and it's, it's amazing. It's exciting for kids and so forth. Um, but... Those items are all going to fall apart. I don't think we have anything that endured from Chuck E. Cheese's. The tickets are worthless once you walk out the door. 
yet it's really exciting when you're there. Well, the comparison is to the rich in this present age. We are like kids with lots of Chuck E. Cheese tickets in our hands. That's what being rich in this present age is like. We can't buy anything outside of Chuck E. Cheese. They will not last long, and the tickets will be no good once our lives are over. This present age is passing, and it may seem exciting to have things now, but it soon won't matter how many Chuck E. Cheese tickets you have in your hand. We'll leave with nothing, just like we came with nothing. So Paul is charging the wealthy in this present age to consider this reality, to consider that, guys, you're wealthy in this present age, basically you've got a bunch of Chuck E. Cheese tickets in your hands. And so he tells Timothy to charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's the problem. The problem is when you've got all that in your hand, you can set your hope on those things in your hand, yet they're uncertain. They are gone in no time. You have a very small amount of time to make the best use of those tickets in your hands. So don't be proud. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hope. Don't find your satisfaction in how many tickets you have, how much money you have. Don't be haughty. Don't put your hope on something uncertain. Think wisely about it. Now, it's important to understand here that what Paul's not saying, he's not saying it's wrong to have lots of tickets in your hands. He's not saying it's wrong to use those tickets in ways where you enjoy God and His creation, appropriate ways to care for your family and so forth. He's not setting spiritual values against physical values or, or saying you, know, you shouldn't have any money. That's holiness. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying any of that. Um, it's not better to somehow deny the physical for the spiritual. That's, that's a heresy. God has made both the spirit and the physical world together to be what our lives are and will be forever. So don't misunderstand this, that somehow it's abasement and asceticism somehow that he's getting at. No, it's about using those tickets in your hands with wisdom and not being haughty, not setting your hope on those things, not measuring your life right now by what you have, how much money you have, how, how big your house is, or how much you get paid per year. Not setting your hope on these things which are uncertain. Not to think too highly of yourself. Not to set up an illusion of security and safety. To not fall into that deception. And that's the, the temptation. Because of our fallenness, we can be easily deceived. We can easily put our hope in false things and, and believe things that aren't true. And, and money is uncertain. It's uncertain for everybody. You don't know what the future will hold. You don't know what will happen. And money can be addictive. It can be like a drug. The richest man in modern history was John D. Rockefeller. Uh, Money, his total assets adjusted for today would be $418 billion. That's almost twice as much as the wealthiest person alive right now. When asked how much money is enough, his reply was just a little bit more. That's how it works. And so we must live soberly. We must understand that our, that our lives are a vapor and we, we can't control the future. There are so many stories in history to teach us about this. One of the intriguing stories is 
the story, the sad story of Elizabeth Rothschild. Uh, the Rothschilds uh, were founding members of European banking, um, the wealthiest family probably in, in history, uh, and, and they're wealthy to this day. Elizabeth married into the family that owned the vineyard. The, uh, so if you know the, uh, the Rothschild vineyards to this day, they still make wine. The, I think the most expensive wine bottle in the world is a uh, Lafitte Pouillac by Rothschild Vineyard, uh, almost $4,000 a bottle. Uh, that's her family. She married into them, and they had uh, the current assets of the family about, is about $200 billion. But she married right before World War II, and she was Jewish. And the terrible devastation of the war changed everything. She lived in Europe at its height, and uh, in, in German culture before the Nazis was at its height. It was the, it was the, the pinnacle, really, of, of science and the arts and architecture and philosophy. They had it. They were wealthy and they were wise in the world's ways. And, and yet, within half a generation, it all changed in the terrible tragedy of, of the Nazis in the war. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was sent to the concentration camps and lost her life. I'm sure when she got married, she didn't expect any of that. And life looked pretty good and stable. And the lesson in this is just that riches are uncertain. I hope somehow by God's mercy she learned that and put her hope in the Lord. But that's the reality. And so Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich not to be haughty, not to set their hope on riches which are so uncertain. It's foolishness. It's unwise. It's, it's, it's the wrong way to live. And the alternative, he says, that they are to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're not to set their hope on the riches, but the provider of all good things for our enjoyment. To be free from this prison of riches, to put their hope in the Lord, the one who gives all good gifts, who provides everything for our enjoyment, both in this life and in the life to come. And he is gracious and faithful and ever giving, ever generous, ever glorious. He never runs out of the things that are needed to be given to us. He never runs out of, of overflowing in His glory and goodness. And He'll never ever run out. He'll ever be who He is, a God who gives and gives and gives and pours out. He is the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that interesting how it says for our enjoyment? He, he's not a killjoy. He's not there thinking, okay, the poorer they are, the better. The less they have, the better. Now, he knows how to weave these things together. He knows how to use trials. He knows how to use poverty even for good. But he's not a killjoy. He wants joy for his children. He richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. And it's not just his children, by the way. He's, he's kind to the, the wicked and the righteous, to all. He's a gracious God. This is who he is. And, and so it's foolish to put our trust in these temporal riches instead of the eternal God, who is the source of all good things. We just celebrated Thanksgiving this past week. and It's such an appropriate holiday to, to gather together, to feast, to be with each other, and to give thanks. It's one day in the year we, where we intentionally uh, give thanks by virtue of the holiday. But really, I think if we get the graciousness of God, and if we 
exercise some of the things that we do at, at Thanksgiving, just kind of our gratitude muscles, right? To start thinking about how has he been good to us and start working through the list. If we really got that, every day would be Thanksgiving. Because God is ever good to us. Everything around us, every good gifts. Uh, we're here right now and we are being sustained by God's wonderful goodness. Every aspect of creation, from the subatomic particles that hold together every instant by His grace, to the space-time continuum that's supported by God, um, your ability and who you are to think, your ability to experience pleasure and joy, your physical and spiritual health, your gifts, your family, your friends, the foods you eat, your closet full of clothes, your home, every breath in your lungs, every beat of your heart, all these and so much more are all a gift, a gift of the God who richly provides for us, for our enjoyment. You don't need to set your hope on riches. You don't need to be hoping maybe someday you'll win that Powerball, that ticket that you buy will, will produce and you'll have that money. Why do that? Set your hope on this God who is there for you, who richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment. And, and this is just His blessing for all of us in His creation. Ultimately, this provision is expressed in giving us His very Son. This is who He is. He is so gracious. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8-9, such an important verse, I think, in understanding these things. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When we grasp the truth of this passage, and that's the background is. 1 Timothy, it frees us up. It frees us up from putting our hope in riches, which are so uncertain. It frees us up from trying to find our identity and how much we have. To live in the blessing and the security of Christ Himself, though He was rich, for our sake, for my sake, He became poor. So that in His poverty and giving up His eternal glory and humbling Himself and taking my sins and your sins upon Himself and dying in my place and in your place on that cross for, to satisfy the justice of God for our rebellion against God. And this extreme poverty in His work on the cross, our sins are paid for, atoned for, and, and His righteousness is presented to the Lord on our behalf. And we are made one with Him through faith. And so his inheritance that he earned in his glory, in his faithfulness, in his goodness is now our inheritance. We are safe and secure in him. And when we understand this, it frees us to live this very short life that we have in a radically different way. Not running around with those tickets in our hands thinking, I've got to get more tickets, then I'll feel good. But instead thinking, how can I use these tickets in light of who I am in Jesus? We put our hope not in our temporal riches, but in Christ alone. And we live radically differently in that. 
and the true riches we have. And so Paul says in verse 18, speaking of the rich in this world, speaking of you and me, this, that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is what we ought to do in light of this reality that we are rich in Christ and free in Christ. We're to use our riches, which we all have, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, to store by this, to store up treasures that last forever, to cash in our Chuck E. Cheese tickets for something that will last forever. A good foundation for the future, this eternal future, and to take hold of that which is truly life. This is what we're called to do with our riches. This is what we get to do with our riches. This is the difference when we set our hope on the God who richly provides for every good thing for our enjoyment. We can live differently with what we have. We can invest in things. We can invest in good works. We can invest in gospel causes. We can invest in a way that will produce benefits forever. You see, when we get hope, Real hope. It changes how we live our lives now. Hope is not just about pie in the sky by and by, as is said. It's way better than that. It's eternity. But it affects us now. It changes our lives now. And it makes us live wisely now to invest in things that, that are part of God's plan and that will produce eternal treasure. Oh, there's so many ways to do this, and I love just to think about this. Ways we can invest our Chuck E. Cheese tickets in eternal things. There's things like just providing for the poor and the needy. Um, I'm sure many of you do this already. Peg and I have enjoyed giving to things like Compassion International. Um, we've done that over the years, currently giving to Covenant Mercies, so providing money for for orphans in other countries to be educated and to hear the gospel, to be discipled, and to be, have their lives changed. So Covenant Mercies is a wonderful ministry that we've been involved with as a church that does this. And, and there's wonderful stories of, of lives being changed, people going on to university and going on to, to be blessings themselves. For us as a church, there are opportunities to give here Locally as well, we have a benevolence fund, and that benevolence fund is, is to provide for those in financial need in our church, to provide uh, key needs, to, to help cover key bills, and put food on the table. It's a great way to share your riches, to cash in those Chuck E. Cheese tickets for something, and the Lord sees us when he does that, and there's reward for that. There's other opportunities we have as well around us. Um, lots of wonderful opportunities. I think of uh, our church plant, most recent church plant in Salem, King of Peace. Um, and thank you for praying for them. And, and you can give to King of Peace. They still have needs financially. Uh, and I'd love to be able to see Mike freed up to be full-time. Um, and maybe even to, to take on a, an intern or something like that or uh, other things so we can support them. And just a wonderful way to invest. We have people 
who are serving in different parts of the world right now. Our own Mattia Janelle uh, is soon going to be going overseas to serve. A wonderful opportunity to invest there and making an impact in lives in a country that really doesn't have the gospel. Peg and I are going. Uh, we have bought our tickets now, so we'll be flying out in February uh, till mid-March, so about a month, serving overseas as well. Um, and so gifts towards that. These are just all sorts of ways to, to invest those tickets in something that's eternal. Um, I just, I love to think about it. Uh, I love to think about what, if the whole church got this, the, the grand church got this, really got it, the difference it could, could make. I, I, um, I was looking, I've, I've done this a number of times, looking at endowments. So uh, there are different organizations that have endowments. They build up uh, these funds to supply uh, for their organization. And they're all good organizations. Um, and the largest endowment of any, uh, I think it's any nonprofit, is the endowment for, any, any guesses? Harvard. $75 billion endowment. And that money is used to reinvest in, in the college, and, and that's a good cause. I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, and I think the, the, the next one down, or in the top three, is the endowment for the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, by the way. They're building their endowments. Um, and I look at that, and, I, and I, you know, that's good. You know, you know, Harvard, good work, and so forth. Anything good that comes out of that, I'm happy for. I'm not, not jealous in that sense, but I'm jealous in a sense for the church, the church that loves the good news, to build endowments like this and to think what we could do. So if we had a $75 billion endowment for church planting, just off the interest, the yearly interest, assuming it's 10%, right? We could plant 50,000 churches a year with that endowment. 50,000 churches a year. And, and, and so just think of that. Every village throughout the world. If you just, if you just aim that at re, those resources at the unreached people groups of the world, so the part of the world, the large part of the world that's never heard the gospel, never had an effective witness for the gospel, um, there's about 7,000 unreached people groups. It would take you if, you, if you could do it this fast, it takes time to do this, but if you were just able to plant as fast as you could with that money, you could plant a church... Uh, in every unreached people group in one and a half years. You would be part of fulfilling the Great Commission with that. If you want to take more time, you could, over 10 years, you could have a, have a church in every village of the unreached world in 10 years. Well, how would you get an endowment like that? How would you get 75 billion? Well, here's one way. If every believer, every household, leaving household in the United States, gave just 1% of their income for two years, you would have that endowment. 1% for two years, you would have that endowment. Isn't that amazing? This is the power of this passage, right? When we get this, when we understand, don't put our hope in riches. Think in terms of how we can invest those Chuck E. Cheese tickets in things that last forever. And just to give in this way to something like this among many different causes, we can make a huge impact for eternity and have a treasure that lasts forever. Ultimately, the lives that have been touched by the good news of Christ and the glory that's been given to God. Just to say, as well for us as a church, we have room to grow here. 
Our church is very generous. I don't want you to mistake that. We are very generous. I'm very grateful and very content. And I didn't get into this position with any financial interest. I would be very foolish <laughs> to leave my old job to become a pastor for that reason. But I have an interest in you, and I have an interest in this church, and I have an interest in the final day. My job and Toby's job is to make sure on that final day you're there and your reward is maximized. That's what our jobs are. And so I have an interest, we have an interest in this, and in growth as a church. And our church is very generous, very generous. We are doing fine. But I think of growing in this, what we could do. Currently, about a third of our church covers about 90% of our income. And that other, other two-thirds, there's no pressure here. We, and you're anonymous. Um, there's no desire to get into details with you other than to say there's room to grow, I think. And there's different circumstances. We understand that. We don't require it either. But if... If from what we can understand, looking at numbers anonymously, if we were to grow to the, everyone giving 10%, we could increase our income another $225,000 as a church. That's significant. And it's not the money that, that matters. What is it? It's what we can do with that. Think about what we can do with that. Think about the things we could do with that. We could have an, a second pastor that would free... Us, me up and free us up to do a lot more, a lot more discipleship, a lot more care, a lot more evangelism. I, I think about, uh, I was just with some friends the other week, and they are doing a uh, pastoral residency program. And it's a program where they take uh, students who graduated from seminary, and they have a residence, a two-year residence, where they serve pastorally, and they learn about pastoral ministry before they go pastor. Because most people coming out of seminary, are not ready to go pastor a church, certainly not to be a senior pastor somewhere. And so many of them do that, and they don't last long. The fallout rate, I think it's 80% within five years or something like that. Huge fallout rate. And so what they're doing is they're providing this residency where they come and they serve in the church and they learn how to pastor. And they work a job while they do it, so it doesn't cost that much. Um, I asked my friend how much it, they were paying, and uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, ballpark, I asked him, he said, about 10000 a year. And then I was tempted to tell the resident who was with us, we'll pay you more if you come to our church. <laughs> but I think about what we could do with stuff like that. A bunch of residents, the ability to train them and to send them, and the ability to have them here and serve. These are the sorts of things we can do. I think of other things we can do, and, and I'd love to do the same thing with missionaries. Have them come here. Have them be cared for. Have them you know, raise their support. Be discipled. Be mentored. Learn how to, learn how to pastor here. And then send them to some of these countries that we're involved in. Send a team to where Peg and I are going permanently. That, that would be wonderful. Those are the sorts of things that should get us excited. And I think if we get this passage and we get the, the wonder of how rich we are in Christ and how free we are, we can start investing, putting our hope in Him and doing these things. And I only ever want us to do this because we are we are compelled by grace and love. So don't feel, I'm not wanting you to feel guilty or anything. I would just want you to hear the opportunity and the invitation to give here. Paul says more about what the impact here. He says that as we do this, we're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. 
a good foundation for the future, that there is an investment in eternity. You can't take it with you, but you can invest in a way where you can send it on ahead. And it does impact your heavenly reward. And that will mostly be in lies when there will be other ways. We, I don't understand how it all works, but we're told there's a sure foundation. There are rewards. And then he says this, so that you may take hold of that, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Interesting. Some versions uh, use the word that they may take hold of eternal life, but that's not the word there. It's true, truly life. Um, it's the word true. And so Paul's not saying here you can buy your way into heaven. You can't, you can't exchange your Chuck E. Cheese tickets for heaven. There's only one payment that will get you in there. That's Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he paid for you. This is the wonder, right? He paid it for you, and he's waiting for you to receive the offer, which means you turn away from self, you turn away from sin, and you simply receive the offer. It's that simple, the good news of Christ. It's that simple. You don't have to get your life together, so to speak, ahead of time. You just need to turn away from all those things you know he says you don't want to, uh, he doesn't want you to do. And turn away from self-reliance. Just turn away and turn to him. Rely on him. And you receive that offer. It's freely given to you. That's the wonder of it. So it's already, heaven's already bought in Christ. But now the call here is now to invest what you have in eternal things that you might take hold of that which is truly life. Life as it's meant to be. Life with purpose and meaning and joy and eternal results. That's a life that lasts forever. A life that overflows now into eternity. A life that's full and maximized according to the, the gifts that God has given you. That's what's being talked about here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is in every way. Jesus speaks about the same thing. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's a true full life when we sacrifice for the Lord, when we give for the Lord. There's reward now. There's a fullness now. There's, there's things added now and there's things for eternity. So why spend your money on things that won't last? Why not spend it on things that will last forever? And as I close, just some thoughts in light of this. I would encourage you to set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. And for some of us, this has really been important in my life, and I, I could actually trace the path of becoming a pastor through giving in light of this passage of these truths. That maybe for you, this Christmas, you need to give a gift. And maybe it's a substantial gift. Maybe write a check for the Benevolence Fund. Maybe pay off our church mortgage. Maybe give to somebody going overseas. For some of you, I would encourage you to consider tithing. I know it's really different than what the rest of the world does. I remember showing a family member my budget years ago, 
and we had a tithe in our budget. And just they're like, what are you, crazy? You're barely making ends meet. By the way, the tithe is a principle in Scripture that's been there for a long time. It's giving of a tenth. It's all it means is a tenth. And it was given by the hand-to-mouth people, the people who had to pray for daily bread, by the way. So it's not something we can't do. Again, we do it voluntarily. We, we do it because we love to do it. We want to do it wisely. So if you have questions, I'd love to try to help you with that or someone on our finance team as well. But maybe for you, you need to start tithing, giving 10%. And I have a proposition for you. Just try it. Three months. Try giving 10% of your income, your gross income, for the next three months and see what happens. Beyond that, it's up to you. But I trust that if you do it, there'll be joy and there'll be fruit. When we understand the riches we have in Christ and this promise of investing for eternity, we are free to truly enjoy our riches as we set our hope on God who richly provides us with every good thing. Let me pray and just take a minute to talk to the Lord how he wants you to respond. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the riches we have in you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for who you are. You're the one who richly provides us with every good thing for our enjoyment. I pray you'd free us up to use our lives wisely, to set our hope on you, and to give to what will last forever. I thank you, Lord, for the generosity of your people here. What a pleasure and a privilege to walk together in doing this. Help us to grow in this more and more, Lord, we ask. Speak to us now and be glorified through our lives, we pray in Christ's name.